episode 72, Dancing with the Stars. I'm Merle Riedel, and you're listening to a January 14, 2009 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. In this podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured on the Cool Things section of our website, kshs.org. In 1856, Margaret Usher stepped onto the dance floor of Lincoln's second inaugural ball wearing a stunning silk dress. 144 years later, the dress still exists, and so does the inaugural tradition. Join Museum Director Bob Kekeisen and me as we examine a dress worn to the most prestigious of American ceremonies, a presidential inaugural ball. How did Margaret Usher, a resident of Lawrence, Kansas, get access to such a premier event? And how did her dress measure up to Mary Todd Lincoln's, wife of the president and renowned fashion icon? It's all glitz and glamour as we head to the inauguration. On January 29th, Kansas celebrates its 148th birthday. We sit down with Historical Society educator Lois Hare to find out what is in store for Kansas Day 2009. Finally, we continue our look into the shady side of William Allen White when we play Six Degrees of William Allen White, The Dark Side. This week, we connect White, a newspaper editor from Emporia, Kansas, to Bernie Madoff, the American investment tycoon that appears to not have invested a thing. But first, Dancing with the Stars. Good afternoon, Bob. Good afternoon, Bob. Today, um, we got a little treat. We're going to be talking about uh, inaugurations. Um, okay. On January 20th, President Barack Obama will be sworn in as President of the United States. Um, 144 years ago... Another Illinois lawyer was sworn in, uh, Abraham Lincoln, which Obama often uh, kind of links Mm -hmm. himself to Abraham Lincoln. To commemorate Obama's historic inauguration, we're going to discuss a dress that was actually worn to Lincoln's second inaugural ball in 1865. Okay. It's known as the Usher Dress. And this smoke blue silk ballroom gown has a giant hoop skirt. It looks very, like, sort of gone with the wind like, mm-hmm. <laughs> and is trimmed with some, some vivid kind of blue velvet. Yep. It's really a stunning looking it dress. Is. It's, it's a marvelous dress. It's, it's very shimmery sh- mm-hmm. silk, and it's just amazing looking. It's, it's an amazing museum artifact, I think. I um, agree. <laughs> yeah. M- Margaret Usher uh, was the wife of John Palmer Usher, and she wore this phenomenal gown to the inaugural ball. Bob, who were the Ushers, and how did they get into an event like this? Well, uh, John Palmer Usher was Abraham Lincoln's Secretary of the Interior, and Usher and Lincoln had been acquainted since the mid-1850s when uh, both men had been attorneys uh, practicing in Illinois and Indiana. And uh, they got acquainted then. But he wasn't initially Lincoln's Secretary of the Interior. That uh, was a man named Caleb Smith. But um, Usher had served as Smith's undersecretary. And when Smith left office in 1862, Usher was promoted to Secretary of the Interior. 
you know, I'm assuming that um, it's probably protocol for the president to invite uh, members of his cabinet to, to the inaugural cabinet. ball. Even even the losers like the yeah. inter- Secretary, Secretary of the Interior, Interior yeah, who had just a couple of years before been Under Secretary of the Interior, uh, but they got an invitation to the uh, inaugural ball. Uh, in fact, we have a copy of the uh, inaugural ball invitation in the library collections, and we have Margaret Usher's dress in the museum collections. This dress has a very um, military or zouave style. Uh, It seems similar to other gowns that were worn by a more infamous shopper, Mary Todd Lincoln. Bob, why were these ladies wearing military styles? And do you think Margaret Usher and Mary Todd, did they ever go shopping together? Because I know Mary Todd went on a lot of shopping trips. She's a big shopper. Ah, You know, I really don't know whether they went shopping together. I'm not even sure, you know, how that was happening. Handled, you know, in the in the 1860s, whether for security reasons, you would just let the first lady go out shopping. Uh, I would imagine so, but I'm thinking that probably Margaret Usher wasn't quite in the inner circle of uh, Mary Todd Lincoln, who was very well bred, very um, kind of high society, um, and since she Margaret had been the wife of the undersecretary just a few years earlier, my guess is probably not, but I can't say for sure. You know, maybe Mary. Todd Lincoln needed a little companionship on the shopping trips, but they would have been looking for gowns similar to this. Although this is an inaugural ball gown, it does share some similar characteristics with styles of the day. And when you mentioned that military or or zouave style, the zouave style basically is is based on the zouave uniforms that were used in the Civil War, which is a particular unit. And that's not exclusive to the United States military. In fact, the zouaves were uh, units in the French army that had been raised in Algeria back in the 1830s through the 1860s. And that kind of zouave style of uniform uh, became popular uh, in the 1850s. There were a couple of commanders in the United States military that saw these, thought they were kind of classy looking, although I think by today's standards, we see them as a little bizarre. They kind of have large, baggy pantaloon, kind of almost what you would think of today as parachute pants. Uh-huh. I mean, in short, they kind of they kind of blossom out. There's a very short tunic jacket. Some United States military zouave uniforms uh, units even wore little fezes with tassels yeah. on them. And they're often uh, very bright, like yeah. red colors. And if you want to think of what the Zouave looks like, think of like the organ grinder monkeys, yeah, what they pretty, wear. Pretty close. That is Zouave yeah. style. Yeah, big. And the pants were usually red, although there were some Zouaves that have white. Mostly they're red, so they're very colorful. Um, I don't know if it was just the element of surprise uh, when you're, you're like, coming up to startle your enemy. Yeah, it's kind of like, well, what's, what's up with these guys? And you forget to shoot. But um, the Zouave style became popular. A lot of women started, uh, well, a lot of dresses started getting based sort of on that. And many women started wearing this type of clothing as a show of patriotism back during the Civil War. Um, so, you know, the, the Zouave dress would, would have like a separate skirt, uh, a jacket, a bodice, very similar to the Usher dress that we have here in the museum collection. What is the purpose of an inauguration? I mean, once you're elected as a president, aren't you kind of in charge? I mean, you got, you've got your mandate, you're in charge. Uh, why do we need all this extra pomp and circumstance, a bunch of balls, parades? Some crazy poet reading poems. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think like anything, there, there always has to be a transition period, obviously, because you've got to get the old administration out and the new one in, and that doesn't happen overnight. But I think partly it's, it's festive, partly it, it's commemorative. Not only do we like to have an event to say, yes, there's, there's a change taking place here, but I also think it's 
not so, you know, uh, I mean, to be a little more serious about it, I think it says to the country and really to the rest of the world, uh, here's an orderly transition of government. You know, we're, we're changing from one administration to another. Uh, this year, we're changing from one political party to another. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of a way to say, you know, we're cool with this. And that's also a great excuse to have a party. So, you know, why not have, you know. And, and there's so many people that want to attend things now where, like, Lincoln in 65 had an inaugural ball. You know, the last few presidential administrations, and I'm, I'm assuming with President Obama as well, there will be a number of yeah, uh, ten. Inaugural balls. Oh, okay, ten, ten. yeah. So it's it's down from the Clinton era, which was more than ten. Maybe a long night for the Obamas, I think. But they'll, they will no doubt make an appearance at each. Uh, in fact, uh, Abraham Lincoln and Mary Todd Lincoln didn't show up to their inaugural ball in 65, where Margaret Usher wore this dress, until 10.30 in the evening. And the report was they stayed for several hours. So... For Obama's inauguration, roughly one million, possibly more, are expected to fill the Washington Mall. When Secretary Usher attended Lincoln's ceremony in 1865, would he have seen that many people walking around D.C.? Uh, probably not. Not a million. Uh, inaugurations were still a big deal. And I think there uh, – I've, I've read reports where there were as many as 30,000 people attending uh, Lincoln's 30, ceremony. 30,000 in 1865. In so that's, that's, a, that's a good number. And, yeah, the mall is a big place, so you can get a lot of people on it. Uh, and if you look at some of the photos, it's, it's one of the earliest inaugurations that was photographed. I actually think there are a couple of photographs of Buchanan's inauguration previously in – uh, the 1850s, but uh, the photos I've seen, you know, there, there's there's a lot of people around, and there are some folks that say if you look at one particular photograph of Lincoln's second inaugural, where he's reading his address, which in his speech uh, was was fairly short, by the way, um, but that in that photograph you can see some of the Lincoln conspirators or the people who were later convicted. Uh, there's some people says you can see some of those people in the photograph, in like the no front row kidding. below. Uh, Lincoln. I don't know. I haven't looked into that enough to confirm or deny that, but uh, it just popped into my head, so I thought I'd say it. <laughs> Do you think? I wonder if they were, uh, you know, looking for an opportunity. Uh, I mean, it's um, you know just what a little over a month later that he's assassinated. So. Do you think this would have made newspaper newspaper headlines in like out here in Kansas? The Lincoln inauguration, not the assassination, but oh, the inauguration. Well, that, no, it did. But yeah, I think yeah, the inauguration would have, and I think also. Um, even at the even at the time, I think it got noticed. But since then, the second inaugural has become one of Lincoln's best known addresses, probably second only to the Gettysburg Address. And I think most people primarily uh, remember it or would recognize it today from its closing phrase. And I brought it along because it's great, but everybody will recognize this. Lincoln ends his second inaugural address in 1865 by saying. With malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. So that's how he ends the address. And, you know, with very little change, you could use that in a lot of inaugural addresses. I mean, here's somebody that says, you know, with malice towards them, with charity for all, you know, let's move forward, let's do the right thing, let's achieve a just and lasting peace in our time and with all nations. It's a, it's a pretty universal comment. 
It is universal, but I would say it is unique because of the circumstances in which it's given. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's given this after the Civil War. This is his moment. I mean, inauguration of his of his his second inauguration. Yeah. You could. This is his moment of like vindication. Yeah. You know, almost I mm-hmm. told you so, mm-hmm. and and you can't challenge yeah. my authority. But instead, it's a rather conciliatory. Yeah, and and, and from people that heard the inaugural address in person, there's uh, some reporters that said it's it had a certain melancholy delivery to it. What happened to Secretary Escher and his wife after the inauguration, and how did the gown, which went to a ball in Washington, D.C., <laughs> how did it end up here in the collection of the Kansas Museum of History? Yeah, it's a guy from Indiana who <laughs> worked for President Lincoln. Uh, how, how does he wind up here? Well, interestingly, uh, Usher resigned as Secretary of the Interior just four days after the inaugural ball. Now, remember earlier I'd said he became Secretary of the Interior in 1862, Usher had been under some political pressure to resign, and party leaders had been urging Lincoln to replace him. Um, you know, not to be you know too unkind about it, but Usher uh, was not the most dynamic of personalities. Uh, he'd been described as a quote faithful but dull unquote uh, supporter of Lincoln. Uh, there were you know a lot of jockeying for cabinet positions, and people from certain states wanted you know their their state represented. You know, Usher. I think kind of saw the handwriting on the wall, and although he worked with Lincoln, he and had known him for for some years, uh, wasn't really in the inner circle. So Usher resigned just four days after the the inaugural ball, but Lincoln asked him to stay on, or they agreed that he would stay on through May. So he resigns in March. He's going to go through the first part of May. Well, as we all know. Lincoln was assassinated on April 14, 1865, so Usher was still the Secretary of Interior on the night of uh, Lincoln's assassination. And in fact, when he found out about it, he rushed to Lincoln's bedside. Usher kept his you know, uh, promise, I guess you would say, and uh, left office in May of 1865. And when Usher left Washington, he came to Kansas— there's our connection. Uh, uh, to become, he became the Solicitor General for the Eastern Division of the Union Pacific Railroad. So he's he's a railroad attorney, mm-hmm. and eventually he and Margaret, his wife, uh, settled in Lawrence, Kansas. And Usher was actually mayor of Lawrence from really? 1879 to 1881. The, se- the Secretary of the Interior later became the mayor of, of Lawrence, Lawrence, Kansas. And um, after he passed away, Margaret um, Usher lived in Lawrence until she died in 1911. And uh, she donated the had donated the dress to the museum. So that's how we... Well, it's a roundabout way, but it'll work. But, but we've got it in the collection now. All right, Bob, now it's time to lay, play a little uh, inauguration trivia, which I think is always fun to do. Fun facts about inauguration. Up for it. Um, I will give you the statement, Bob. You tell me if it's true or false. Okay. Okay, we'll start out with... Um, I don't have to buzz in or anything, right? No, Bob, you're the only contestant. Okay. It's all yours. President George Washington was sworn in on the east portico of the Capitol on April 30th, 1789. Well, that would be false. False. I know. Why, the, the, the date's right, but uh, it's actually kind of a trick question. It was. Because George Washington was inaugurated in New York City. Right. In Federal Hall overlooking Wall Street. Actually, the, the first president to be inaugurated in Washington, D.C. was Thomas Jefferson. Only the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court can issue the presidential oath. 
Uh, that is also false. Very good. Very well, good. It, it's custom for the oath of office for the president to be administered by the chief justice. There's been a number of occasions when someone else has done so. Uh, in fact, in Washington's case, like mm-hmm. we just we just mentioned, uh, he was sworn in by Robert Livingston, who was a uh, chancellor of the state of New York. I believe I've doing this off the top of my head, was a signer of the Declaration of Independence as well. Uh, And probably one of the more famous ones was Calvin Coolidge after the death of President Warren Harding. He was sworn in by his father, who was a Vermont notary public. Although it usually goes to the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, you can have a notary public. You have your dad do it. Yeah, notary public give you the oath of office if need be. Nice. All right. So you're two for two, Bob. Okay, well. Scoring well. Lyndon Johnson was the first and so far only president to be sworn in by a woman, U.S. District Judge Sarah Hughes. Okay, this one I know. That's true. That is true. That is true. But it's a little unusual circumstances, right? Yeah. Uh, Following the assassination of President Kennedy, um, Vice President Johnson was in Dallas and they needed to administer the oath of office, so they had to find someone. The Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court is not there, uh, so they cast around quickly, I believe, the Texas Attorney General, Mm -hmm. and they found Sarah Hughes, who was a United States District Court judge, and rushed her to the airport, and she administered the oath of office on the plane, that very famous photograph of Johnson taking the oath of office with Jacqueline Kennedy standing behind him with her husband's blood still on her dress. It's you know one of the most uh, dramatic photos, I think, in U.S. history. But that's Sarah Hughes. And to this day, she's been the only woman. And I'm assuming, maybe and hoping, eventually we'll have another woman who is <laughs> Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. Uh, administer the oath. All right, Bob. Finally, uh, your last question. Victorious from the Civil War, Lincoln's second inaugural ball was far more heavily attended than his first inaugural ball. Well, I'm not quite sure how to answer this one because I think you're trying to throw me a trick question here again. I'm not so sure there was a first inaugural ball. I don't believe there was. 1861, uh, the the South is seceding like crazy. We're not actually at war yet because that would have been April of 61. But um, I hate to admit this as a historian, not knowing whether there was a first inaugural ball. But if, let's say, there there was, I'm sure the second one would have been much better attended. So Mm -hmm. I guess I would say true. And, um, you know, all of this... You know, coming in the year of Lincoln's, uh, the bicentennial of his birth, you know, 1809 to 2009, and with uh, Barack Obama being inaugurated um, next week. Um, Yeah, there's kind of a nice symmetry to all of this. (laughs) You know, you got to like that stuff. Well, Bob, thanks for telling us about Margaret Usher's uh, dress worn to the Lincoln inaugural. It's been my pleasure. would like to see images of this stunning inaugural gown, just go to our website at kshs.org and click on the podcast icon. Lincoln's second inaugural ball was the ultimate demonstration of a victorious presidency. Unfortunately, Margaret Usher's dress is almost all that remains, and it may soon be gone as well. Constructed of silk, the dress has begun to deteriorate. Fabric is shattering and flaking away. Measures can be taken to preserve this national treasure, but we need your help. You can contribute to its preservation. Just go to our website and click on Podcasts. 
Scroll down to Donate and contribute $10 or more. Your gift will help preserve our history for future generations. Now, we turn to the greatest holiday of the year, Kansas Day. On January 29th, the Kansas Historical Society and the entire state will celebrate the birthday of Kansas. At 148 years old, the state still looks pretty good. Welcome, Lois Hare, Education Outreach Coordinator at the Kansas Historical Society. How are you today? Fine. Good. Lois, you're here to tell us a little bit about the Society's plans for Kansas Day 2009. What does Kansas Day commemorate, Lois? Kansas Day is a celebration of Kansas' birthday. Um, Kansas became a state January 29, 1861, and every year the state of Kansas celebrates the birthday. So this is the 148th birthday of Kansas. 148 and still going yes. strong. Yes. Each year the Kansas Historical Society does up Kansas Day in, in sort of a pretty big fashion. Uh, this year's theme is Abraham Lincoln. Why, why Abe? We're celebrating Abraham Lincoln this year um, because mainly because it's his 200th birthday. So nationwide you're going to see Abraham Lincoln's birthday celebration. So we are part of that. Um, and we are really part of that because he was in Kansas shortly before he was elected in 1859. Uh, there will be several special guests. Um, one might actually even see Abe himself strolling around. Um, can you tell us about some of these guests and what they'll be doing? Abe Lincoln will be here. Um, Tom Leahy. <laughs> that is impressive, Lois, that yes. you got Abe Lincoln. Yes, we, we perform miracles here. <laughs> but Tom Leahy, who is a actually a teacher in Kansas, has portrayed Lincoln throughout the United States. And he has been invited, and he is going to come visit us. He'll be reciting the Gettysburg Address, and he will also be talking to the kids and performing as Abraham Lincoln on stage that day. Our other performer is Richard Pitts um, from Wonder Workshops in Manhattan, and Richard um, does a lot of work with African-American storytelling and drumming tradition, so he will be performing also. All right. Um, if you're a school and you want kids to be involved in this Kansas Day here at the museum, what should you do? If you're a school, if you have a group of 10 or more that it's coming, um, we would prefer that you call in advance and let us know just so we have some idea of the numbers that are coming so that we can be more prepared for you all, hopefully. Um, and if you are a group and you want to pre-register, you can call us up at 785 272 8681 extension 414 or you can email us at education at kshs.org and just let us know when you're coming and how many and, and if you're a group of 10 or less or if it's just you you and your uh, you know you and your wife and you want to go check it out everybody is invited it's um, Kansas Day is a free day at the museum we are open to the public you don't have to be to school uh, a school group to come but if you're a group of less than 10, you don't need to call in advance. Just come and enjoy the day. And the event goes on from 9 o'clock to 3 o'clock on that day. Among the special guests that, uh, that will be here is uh, Kansas Governor Kathleen Sebelius, who just happens to be good friends with another president from Illinois, Barack Obama. When will the governor be here? Governor Sebelius will be here at 10 o'clock on Kansas Day, and um, she'll be making a few brief remarks, and she'll be on stage with Abraham Lincoln, actually. So, so if you want to see 
Governor Sebelius and Abraham Lincoln together, it's possible. Yes. Nice. All right, so folks, get ready to celebrate the 148th birthday of Kansas on January 29th, 2009, uh, from 9 to 3 p.m. at the Kansas Historical Society, and take advantage of the free admission that day. And now it's time for another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White. Uh, this week, we continue to explore the uh, the darker side of William Allen White by looking at uh, the more nefarious uh, of characters that were associated with him. And uh, joining me is Rebecca Martin, the museum assistant director, and Nikayla Zimmerman, the assistant registrar. Hi. Hello. Hi. Hello. <laughs> this week, we connect the Pulitzer Prize-winning writer from Emporia to Bernard Madoff an investment banking swindler that may have perpetuated uh, the largest fraud in history. I meant perpetrated, not <laughs> <Yeah>. perpetuated. <laughs> All right, first, a little general background on him. Are you guys, you guys familiar with Mr. Madoff? Tell us about him. All right, I will. We haven't he, heard he was, the news in the I last know. month. I know. It's pretty low-key. He was born in 1938, Bernard Lawrence Madoff, born to a Jewish family in Queens, New York. After receiving an education in, at Hofstra University in New York, Madoff began a small investment company founded with money he made while working as a lifeguard and installing sprinklers. Sounds very wholesome. Modest yeah. beginnings, yeah. you know? Very low-key. His company grew to be one of the largest on the New York Stock Exchange, and Madoff himself served as chairman of the NASDAQ. Unfortunately, in December 2008, Madoff revealed to his management team, which included two of his sons, that the company was basically a giant Ponzi scheme. And the sons were actually the ones that tipped off federal mm -hmm. investigators about what was going mm -hmm. on. Um, and so a federal <laughs> indictment has ensued. Uh, but you I may Christmas was weird at their house this yeah. year. <laughs> a little uncomfortable. Yeah. yeah. Or Hanukkah. Hanukkah. Yeah. yeah, they're Jewish. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so you may be asking, what exactly is a Ponzi scheme? Because when this, went, when this broke the news, um, I think we all heard a term we'd never heard before, which was Ponzi scheme. And everybody was throwing it around on TV like it was a common term. And uh, I, you see, you know, speaking as an older person, I've heard of Ponzi schemes. I've lived long enough to see Ponzi schemes per multiple perpetrated or perpetuated. <laughs> yes, multiple iterations of Ponzi schemes. And meanwhile, we thought they were a Fonzie scheme. Yeah. <laughs> I thought they were a Ponzi scheme. Or a Ponzi scheme. <laughs> Somehow it was related to happy days. Uh, what is a Ponzi scheme? It is a fraudulent money-making strategy that pays investors with the money of other investors instead of profits. So it's a variant of the classical pyramid scheme, and it is named for Italian for an Italian Charles Ponzi who came to the U.S. and in 1903 he was busted for running a high-profile version uh, of this pyramid scheme in New York. Uh, Nikayla, I believe you have a solution. You have a way to connect William Allen White to Bernie Madoff. I do. As you mentioned just now, Bernard Madoff is known for running a Ponzi scheme, which lost his investors billions of dollars. Um, and as you also mentioned, the Ponzi scheme gets its name from Charles Ponzi, who ran a swindle that involved um, buying cheap postal return coupons in one country and redeeming them at face value in the U.S., thereby turning a profit. That's pretty which, impressive because it's a far more complicated <laughs> scheme that can be comprehended. It is. And the fact that he found the one tiny loophole is kind of amazing. But um, Ponzi supposedly was inspired by another swindler that he met while in prison in Atlanta. And that man's name was Charles Morris. Um, Morris was a rich man, and he kind of learned from him that wealthy men are the only ones who ever win. So after he got out of prison, he was he was 
out to get wealthy. Um, he was in prison for trying to smuggle illegal Italian immigrants into the United States. So he was mm. kind of an all-around bad guy, that, mm -hmm. that Ponzi. Okay, so... <laughs> In 1908. As opposed to Madoff. Yeah, yeah, much better. Yeah. In 1908, uh, Morris, who was a businessman and Wall Street speculator, was indicted by U.S. District Attorney Henry L. Stimson for violation uh. of federal banking laws. We've met Stimson before. Um, well, not personally. Not personally, but we've talked about him <laughs> He's before. He's been dead a while. He, yeah. <laughs> Maybe in a past life we did. Who knows? Uh, okay, so Stimson began his law career in the Wall Street firm of Root & Clark. Elihu Root was the Root part of that partnership. At the 1912 Republican National Convention, Root served as the permanent chairman. And as we know, William Allen White, was um, he was a delegate there, and he covered it as part of the Adams Train Seals, which we've talked about before. <laughs> All right, Nikayla. Well, that's pretty good. I also have a solution, and um, uh, we didn't consult prior to uh, coming up with these solutions, but uh, unfortunately, we should mine, start. <laughs> mine is pretty darn similar to yours. Um, like you were saying, Charles oh, we'll just Ponzi. Stop now, then. You don't need to go <laughs> well, it changes a little bit. So much shorter, Yeah, I, mine's shorter. I beat her. Okay. Uh, yeah. Charles Ponzi, like we said, uh, he invented the Ponzi. Well, he didn't invent the Ponzi scheme, but he was he was kind of one of the first um, people who really successfully. Um, exploited. Well, he was in prison in 1910, and that was when he went, he met Mr. Charles W. Morse. And Morse was born rich. He had pretty good education, but Morse was just a sketchy, sketchy character, sketchy businessman um, from the very beginning. Uh, he continually used fraud, political connections, and organized crime to acquire local monopolies. And in 1909, Morse was convicted of bank fraud and sentenced to prison. Um, and that's where he met Mr. Ponzi. And that's where he may have taught Mr. Ponzi some of the ideas of these schemes and rackets for making money. Although what's really interesting about, about Morse is he, um, he was uh, pardoned. In 1912, he successfully faked being sick. He fooled By, doctors. What did he do? He ate soap. Yeah. A certain type of soap that can simulate, simulate cause you to, uh, dis to display symptoms of being ill. But, but then rabies? you immediately feel better. Yeah, foaming oh. at the mouth. You you feel better like right after. So, exactly. Oh yeah. my god. Exactly. So they, he made it seem like he was ill, deathly ill, and um, and that's when they uh, he applied for a pardon, um, and he was granted a pardon by President Howard um, Howard Taft. Is that right? William Howard Taft. William, William Howard, Howard Taft. Taft. <laughs> <laughs> uh, President William Howard Taft. Um, president, yeah. Well, we never refer to him by his first name. It's always, you know, <laughs> President Taft. When, when we were talking about him all the time around the work. That's right. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well it's going to be President Taft from here on. <laughs> um, and as we know, Taft actually visited White in Emporia at his home um, mm -hmm. on a couple occasions. Mm -hmm. Didn't he sleep in the bed, the infamous bed that presidents mm -hmm. have slept in at the William Allen White Four House? Or presidents slept in. At yeah. 910 Exchange Street in Emporia, <laughs> Kansas, if you ever want to visit it. Yeah. Um, and so that's my solution. That was fast. Yeah, yeah. pretty easy. Pretty yeah, easy. as opposed to all that wordiness I spewed out there. <laughs> we learned some history, though. Uh, Rebecca, would you like to share uh, next week or the ne challenge for the next episode? Yeah, next time we'll connect, or we want you two to help connect William Allen White to Jefferson Davis. And I hope he sounds familiar to most of you history buffs because he was president of the Confederacy and arch enemy of Abraham Lincoln. Once a West Point grad, U.S. Senator and Secretary of War for Franklin Pierce, Davis apparently turned and led the only rebellion in American history.
to date. That's right. <laughs> so keep your fingers crossed. I have, I have a question. Are we ever going to connect William Allen White to nice people? <laughs> Every, no, we're on a, we're on a we're on a kick right now to connect oh. them to shady people. Are there any Wikipedia pages on nice people? Well, they're not. Probably as not. Jeez, no. if you know somebody nice that you want <laughs> yes. to connect to, well, you White did too. Santa Claus. Santa Claus that's, is yeah. awfully nice. And Cupid's coming. Okay. Yeah, Cupid. (laughs) So if you think you can connect William Allen White to this bizarro Lincoln, just send us your chain of connections to podcasts at kshs.org. That is podcast with an S. That's it for episode 72, Dancing with the Stars. Come back in two weeks when curator Blair Tarr examines a couch that once hosted the backside of abolitionist author Harriet Beecher Stowe. This podcast is a production of the Kansas Historical Society. Real people, real stories. Real people, real stories.